Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Aaron Reed, the author of 50 Years of Text Games from 2023. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your choice. You're more than welcome to leave feedback or questions on Spotify too. Also, feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now, back to the show. For 50 years, writers have been creating interactive stories on digital platforms, from text adventures to VR poetry, mods to mobile dating sims, chatbots to roguelikes. These games without graphics have often pioneered new techniques for interactive storytelling, engaged imaginations with beautiful prose and clever gameplay, and also discovered the many ways written stories can be played often forgotten, frequently overlooked, they are still worth remembering today. Actually, this is what we do today. In the book, you'll find 50 in-depth chapters covering 50 games, one released in each year from 1971, when a Minnesota teacher wheeled a teletype into his class to debut a game called The Oregon Trail to 2020 and the latest in AI storytellers. And now I'm very happy to say hello to Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Hmm. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I have kind of had an interesting career path. I started off, um, I, you know, I went to undergrad as a film major and was kind of hoping to be a screenwriter at the time. And that kind of didn't really work out, but I'd always really loved writing. I kind of ended up in a short-lived career as a travel writer for a while. Um, and then uh, was kind of making indie games on you know my own at the time, and was especially really interested in uh, you know text-based interactive fiction games, which I'd kind of played as a kid, uh, and had discovered in you know late '90s, early 2000s. There was this whole online community of people who were still making those, and I think we'll get into that maybe <laughs> later in the interview. Um, but that was just kind of my you know my hobby and my side project. And then um, I heard about a program at the University of California, Santa Cruz, that was specifically looking for people who, you know, were interested in writing, but sort of, you know, interactive writing with both technical and artistic backgrounds. And I had sort of always, you know, seen myself as a person who 
I didn't think of myself as someone who was good enough at either art or programming to, you know, get, get into a program focused on one of those. Um, but this program specifically was looking for people who kind of have more straddling that boundary. And so I thought, well, you know, what the heck I'll apply. Um, and yeah, I got in and had a great time in that program. I went on to uh, a PhD there, uh, at Santa Cruz working with, um, Noah Wardrop Fruin and Michael Matias, who were, um, you know, two people I really admired a lot um, for their kind of theoretical work in that interactive story space. Um, and yeah, since then, I've kind of been doing a mixture of um, kind of interactive story consulting for game companies, some kind of uh, amateur scholarship, as this book is a good example of. Um, and uh, my own projects, I've been doing a lot of tabletop role-playing games, because that's kind of another flavor of interactive stories I've always been really interested in. Uh, so yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but it's touched on kind of a lot of different spheres and topics and uh, it's been a fun ride <laughs> so um well of course we have to check for your ludo street credibility <laughs> and it's such it's actually it's such a german word we always think about words <laughs> this might work in english but it really does not but somehow right <laughs> let's stick with it ludo street credibility please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now mm, so Yeah, I, I think probably my favorite game of all time is Riven, the original sequel to Myst, um, because, you know, Myst obviously, you know, was, you know, a hugely best-selling game. It really, you know, uh, was kind of a technological breakthrough, but also just kind of a, a really interesting new way of, you know, using the emerging capabilities of CD-ROMs at the time to tell stories in a different kind of way. But Riven really captured my imagination because it kind of took that template of exploring this world and solving puzzles and really expanded both the mythology behind it, but also the kind of depth of world building that you can uncover um, through kind of these thousands of screens you're clicking through exploring. Um, and that really, at the time, you know, inspired me to want to try to tell interactive stories and, and create worlds with that kind of rich level of, you know, detail and complexity behind them. So yeah, Riven's probably still my favorite game of all time. Um, what am I playing lately? Um, a couple things. Uh, so uh, Fail Better Games that made uh, Fallen London it has a new game out called Mask of the Rose that is a really interesting... I, I'm always really drawn to stuff that's kind of straddling genres or hybrid you know, between different things. So this is kind of in the visual novel template, but it has this very deep interactive uh, relationship system driving it and there's a lot of dynamic story events that can come up depending on how you relate to the characters and there's also a lot of really interesting narrative subsystems so there's a whole system where you try to make theories by you know kind of combining things you've heard people say and to like make arguments that you can use to convince other people so there's a lot of really fascinating stuff going on under the hood of that game i've been really enjoying exploring that um and then i would say the other game i've been playing a lot of uh lately and for a fairly lengthy definition of lately at this point, <laughs> which is not a narrative game at all, uh, is this uh, game Satisfactory, which is kind of a factory building game. But the thing it does compared to other games in that genre, like Factorio, that I really like is it's in a 3D world that you kind of have to explore to uncover new resources or discover stuff you can use. And I really love that combination of sort of like creative problem solving because you have to build these really complicated production chains with exploring this like really beautiful world, which again, you know, harkens back to Riven. That's the kind of gameplay I've been enjoying for, you know, 20 plus years. So um, yeah, so those are a couple of things on my on my screen lately. Yeah, but the last one you're mentioning is it is it's real time, right? It's not turn-based. Right, yeah, yep, yep. All right, yeah. Yeah, well, before too many hours into that, probably. <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. Well, 
Uh, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, before we start our deep dive, uh, please tell our listeners, how did you come to actually write 50 years of tax games in the first place? Yeah, it was an interesting process. So right around the time the pandemic started, uh, I had this sort of moment of realization. So this was back in 2020, right? Um, that I, And I don't remember now where this connection came to me, but um, I realized that uh, the next year, 2021, was going to be the 50th anniversary of the original version of the Oregon Trail, which is a game that, you know, a lot of people in my generation remember playing a later remake of for, you know, Apple computers in the 80s. But the origin of that was, you know, it was that game was already a decade old by that point. It had started as this teletype only game designed by a history teacher to um, introduce his students to the kind of American Western expansion uh, movement in, in history. Um, and I thought, oh, well, you know, that would actually be really interesting to do something to commemorate the 50th anniversary of that, because that was a kind of a very early, you know, precursor to what would later evolve into text adventures and interactive fiction and that whole movement. Um, and I think because, you know, pandemic had started, I was, you know, isolating, missing my friends. And I was also a couple of years out of grad school at that point. And I think, you know, kind of missing, you know, having really meaty projects to dive into and a lot of research to do. Um, I had this idea of, well, what if, you know, there's almost 50 weeks in a year, what if I did a blog series where each week I kind of went through that 50 years of history starting in 1971 up to at the time, the present and picked a text only game to kind of analyze, you know, do a deep dive into how it worked, who made it, what was interesting about it. Um, and that was kind of the genesis of the project. And then pretty early on, I thought, oh, well, this would be kind of interesting to turn into a book at the end, which would be a chance to go back through those blog posts and you know, further flesh them out and, and make the kind of definitive version of that. So yeah, it kind of started as, as a, a pandemic procrastination project and, and uh, ballooned into a, a three-year research endeavor, as often happens. Yeah. Well, now let's start at the, um, at the actual beginning. Your first chapter is titled Before the 70s, the 1970s, I might add. But actually, the first year that shows up altogether on the first page is 1950. So in order to clear up a possible confusion, it is always good advice to go to the source. Uh, at fontes, as we say in Latin, of course. Good historians know that. So, Aaron, why did you pick this decade as a turning point? Yeah, it's so it's an interesting um, problem, right? Because, you know, where does any history start? Um, and I had kind of arbitrarily picked, you know, this Oregon Trail anniversary as a starting point, 1971. Um, uh, but obviously, you know, people had been doing stuff with text on computers before that. Um, so uh, and this chapter of the book was kind of a chance to fix this deficiency in the blog series, right, where I kind of picked this arbitrary moment to start. But in the book, I wanted to say, like, well, let's talk about all the things that came before that moment, too. But it actually turned out to be kind of a pretty useful pivot. And I would kind of defend it because before that year of 1971, computer games were kind of such a rare concept that you could not really find a good example of one a year to talk about. You know, there were, you know, interesting kind of standalone experiments, things like Eliza and things like... Um, you know, uh, the Sumerian game from the mid 60s, which was kind of a very early experiment, another kind of educational game. Um, but as far as having like a, a community of people making computer games, that really didn't start happening until the first couple of years of the 1970s. And then you started seeing people, you know, play ideas off each other and take other people's games and evolve them into new things. So I think that's actually a pretty defensible moment to start that history, because that's, that's kind of the first time that computer games aren't one-off experiments, they actually start becoming 
you know, a movement. Mm. Well, the 70s then, aka the decade that puts me into action, having been <laughs> having been born in 1978, I just about belong to the so-called Generation Y. But when it comes to games, I'm still a bit away from the controller or mouse and keyboard, that is. Lucky me you're here to with me to talk about this time period. Also, you have picked nine game titles, for instance, the aforementioned Oregon Trail or Sorg or Adventure. Please take us through the 70s and maybe one of the aforementioned titles. Yeah, so, you know, it was such an interesting moment because the concept of a computer game really didn't exist yet, right? So everyone who was experimenting with making one was kind of answering these you know, fundamental questions of like, what, you know, can a machine even do? How might you make something entertaining in this format, right? You know, there was obviously this, this very pervasive attitude that computers at the time were incredibly expensive, they were only for, you know, uh, noble pursuits, like, you know, accounting or, uh, you know, military planning, right? Um, so using using a million dollar machine to play uh, fake tennis, right, seemed like a very wasteful and maybe even like, you know, immoral thing, thing, way to use those resources. So there was, uh, there was not a lot of, you know, obviously any sort of institutional support or cultural support. Um, everyone trying to make a game in that time was figuring out for themselves how to, how to make it happen and what, what, you know, what to even begin to start to do. So um, what's fascinating to me about those games is that they're not really in genres yet, right? Because there aren't any established genres. So each, each of those games is kind of trying its own unique thing. And you see, um, you know, the beginnings of ideas that would later kind of be solidified into genres. So there's a game that was probably the most popular mainframe game in the 70s uh, called Super Star Trek or just Star Trek in, in various versions that has a lot of elements that would later kind of become uh, associated with the roguelike genre. So you have a top-down view of a galactic kind of uh, sector with little ASCII characters representing the Enterprise and Klingons and star bases and things. You're moving around that map, exploring it. Uh, the Klingons and the star bases are kind of placed procedurally, so they're in different you know places each time you play. Um, and you're trying to, you know, in this kind of you know semi-emergent situation where each game's a little different, you're trying to kill all the Klingons and use the star bases to refuel. So there's a lot of kind of ideas in that that would become really you know enmeshed in you know the first generation of computer gamers and then start popping up in later games. So I really love tracing back, you know, you don't often hear that Star Trek game mentioned as like a precursor to roguelikes, but if you kind of look at mechanically how it works and what it's doing, it totally is. And I, you know, absolutely the people who made Rogue and the other early roguelikes had played or were familiar with that game. Um, so yeah, it's it's really interesting to me in, uh, in those early days to see the kind of things people ex- experimented with that worked and the kind of things that didn't work, right? And And ideas that kind of, you know, um, ended up not going anywhere too. Yeah, it's really interesting. People tend to think, well, of course, there have always been genres. Why wouldn't there? So let's <laughs> get curious, yeah. Well, this is a book about text. So I imagine things like layout and typography were very important to you. Um, what did you try to do to keep this book visually interesting when you couldn't fall back on colorful screenshots or other more traditional visual aids? Yeah, that was kind of a challenge. So, you know, a lot of these books that are kind of, you know, trying to be like a big overview of a kind of game or something, um, often are really screenshot heavy, you know, it's like, it's really common to have, you know, big cover art photos and lots of screenshots and stuff. 
And for, for a text-based game, that's kind of, you could do that, but a screenshot of a text game is kind of missing the point, right? Like it's not really about the font or the layout, it's kind of about the content. So I had, for the blog series, sort of had this concept that, you know, what, what, what is a text game? Well, for me, it's a game that you want to share excerpts from rather than screenshots, right? It's about the content of those words that are in it. Um, but in a book form, if you have, you know, and this is a 600-page book, with no illustrations in it, that gets that gets very you know uh, dense and and hard to hard to you know page through. So there were a couple things I did. Um, you know, I, I I took a lot of care in the styling of the excerpts, and you know, just to do things like make sure it was clear, you know, what from an excerpt was typed by the player versus generated by the game, and you know, took some care to make those excerpt blocks kind of you know visually pleasant. Um, and I thought a lot about what kind of visual stuff would actually you know add to the experience of reading the book rather than just being eye candy, right? So, you know, a lot of, you know, commercially released text games in the 80s, for example, had cool cover art, but I kind of decided, you know, the reader isn't really learning much about the game from seeing that cover art, right? It's it's pretty disconnected to the actual gameplay. So instead, I was looking at things like, you know, would it be interesting to show a map of the rooms in this game? Would it be interesting to show, you know, a flowchart of how the puzzle progression works in this game? Um, what kinds of stuff would help you know, the reader understand the structure of the game in on some level more than just reading the text and more than just seeing an image from it. So yeah, I, I put quite a bit of thought into how to kind of, you know, use those, you know, still fairly spare, but occasional moments of visual interest to not just kind of break up the prose, but also be, you know, providing information on a different level than just the words. And I was pretty pleased with how that turned out in the end. There's a lot of visual stuff in there. I think that actually really helps helps you understand the games better and uh, also gives your eyes a bit of a break too. <laughs> mm. Now, when I think back to the 1980s, I remember all the great arcade machines at Italian campsites playing at friend's house on the C64 and my first own game console, the Sega Master System, as well as the motorcycle racer Hang On. But the 80s in your book are a little bit different, and our listeners are very curious to know exactly what I mean by that. Oh, and we need to talk about a mind forever voyaging. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, so you know, I was saying in the 70s, it was still mainframe games, computer time was rare. By the 80s, you know, you sort of saw the home computer, microcomputer movement, you know, into full swing. So you went from, you know, an audience of, you know, maybe 10,000 potential gamers to millions of potential gamers. And that kind of was able to support the rise of a computer game industry. And uh, text games for a good chunk of the 80s were really competitive in that industry. And part of the reason for that was that, you know, graphics on early um, home computers were so primitive and the company the american company infocom actually made a big deal of this in their advertising you know making fun of how bad the graphics were on most computer systems at the time and they said well you know our graphics are in your imagination right they've got infinite resolution you know they're as good as you you can imagine them to be um and the other interesting thing about that from a commercial perspective was that you know because graphics were advancing so quickly because they were starting from such a you know base level um you know the best-selling graphical game of 1982 was going to be totally gone from store shelves by 83 or 84 because, you know, prettier stuff had come around. But text games didn't age in quite the same way. So you saw an interesting phenomenon where, you know, a game like Zork came out for um, home computers in 1980, but it was still like topping the sales charts in 1984, 1985, because, you know, text is a lot more timeless than, than you know, early graphical sprites were. 
So um, it was kind of an interesting market. And, uh, you know, kind of unfortunately what happened is that as computer graphics and multimedia kept, you know, capabilities got better and better, those were the things that became the, you know, the exciting demos and genres like, you know, flight simulators and um, eventually, you know, things like first person shooters and stuff kind of became the focus of the industry because those were the things that showed off the newest machines and what they could do. And text games kind of commercially for a while um, uh, went into a bit of a decline. But um, but it was, again, kind of a fascinating experiment because people were really pushing at the boundaries of, you know, this is kind of actually a new medium of writing. Like, what are the things it can do? Um, and yeah, Mind Forever Voyaging, which you mentioned, was kind of a, a really great example. This, this game came out in 1985, um, again, from Infocom, and was a really interesting early attempt to explore, like, can a, a computer game, can a piece of interactive fiction be kind of serious literature, right? Can it try to tackle, you know, actual themes like real world political issues and, um, you know, the uh, the uh, long-term effects of a social policy, the kind of crust, uh, main thrust of that game is you're in a simulation of a future under a politician's um, uh, uh, announced plan to ch- major, majorly change kind of a bunch of laws and social structures. And what you do in the game is you walk around the simulated town and you try to record signs of whether this plan is going to be, you know, is going to improve things or make things worse. And, um, you know, you don't really solve puzzles like most games, you know, included at the time. You don't really have an ability to change the outcome. Your role is just to kind of witness and observe and think about um, whether this society you're exploring is a good place to live or not. And that was really, you know, so far ahead of its time as far as the um, the kinds of, you know, subject matter other games were dealing with at the time. You know, I, I have in the book that game was contemporaneous with the original Super Mario Brothers, right, in in, uh, in stores. So it was really just kind of operating on like a whole different level than most other game makers had gotten to at that point. And um, yeah, it was, it was again, such a fascinating time because that game also doesn't really fit into a genre because Infocom was like, maybe we can invent, you know, <laughs> uh, whole new genres, right? Like this technology can do anything. So yeah, um, commercial success, but also lots of really interesting uh, experiments and and trial balloons and and all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, T- time tra- travelers, who we are now, we have reached the '90s, the 1990s, and this is a team time period characterized by a blend of a wild grunge style, sporty streetwear, and futuristic techno influences. But way more important, I finally got my hands on a PC. Unfortunately, I had no contact, shame on me, with the great game titles you are mentioning, such as Silverwolf or Photopia. So I'm more than eager to find out everything about this decade. Right. So the 90s kind of have a reputation as being like a, a, a dead time for text games, because like I said, you know, the CD-ROM came out, you had games like Myst and Riven and uh, The Seventh Guest, right? This whole new wave of really like, you know, video heavy, uh, multimedia heavy games. And no one wanted to buy tech skins anymore. Um, and when I started researching the book, I thought, oh, well, this is, might be kind of a challenge to find stuff to talk about in this period. But I was really surprised because the 90s turned out to be the most interesting decade to write about because, because of that fact, right? Because um, the, the commercial side had sort of fallen away. Anyone working on text games had like some kind of other motivation or some different plan. So they really mutated into different forms and evolved into other things. So I think some of the really interesting things that characterize the 90s are um, text MUDs became super popular in this decade. So these are sort of, you know, the the precursors to graphical MMOs. 
um, you know, huge virtual worlds with thousands of rooms and, and uh, you know, hundreds of people playing um, where, you know, these epic storylines could play out. Um, again, sort of limited only by, you know, the player's imagination. It's a lot easier to make a new epic end boss in text than if you have to make 3D assets and animation and sound and all of that, right? Um, so MUDs were huge. Uh, in the days kind of before the rise of the World Wide Web, uh, especially. Um, and then um, BBS games uh, were a huge thing, too, because the internet had kind of been around for a while, but most people didn't really um, have the means to access it. So, like, hourly fees were still the norm for connecting to, you know, an internet service. Um, so there were there was this huge kind of um, network of standalone bulletin board systems that people could dial into, and there were games designed for those. But because your interaction with those systems was over, you know, like a 2400 baud modem, maybe that could, you know, would take 15 or 20 minutes to download a JPEG, but could show a screen of text in a few seconds. All of those games were text-based, even though if you went to the software store at the same time, you would be getting these graphical CD-ROM games. But there was this huge thriving movement of text-only BBS games that um, was influential on a lot of people. So, yeah, you saw stuff like that. In academia, you saw people doing interesting experiments into you know, electronic literature, like uh, kind of from a more humanities perspective, right? What are the possibilities of, of you know, linked text? You saw, um, uh, you know, a kind of early wave of amateurs trying to, you know, be like, well, okay, if a, if a big company can make these games, like, what if, what if I could do it? And trying to experiment with making tools and, and making their own, um, you know, unofficial releases. So it was a really fascinating decade because everything was so different from everything else. You had all of these different little microgenres, you had all these different experiments, um, and everyone was kind of see like, okay, well, maybe these aren't going to be the future of computer games anymore, but maybe they could be the future of something else. So yeah, a lot of my favorite chapters from the book are, are in the 90s section. Yeah, it's really interesting to me as well, because the, um, let's say the beginnings of digital game studies are really taking place around that mm -hmm. time as well, yeah, with 97. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of that stuff is really heavily influenced by you know, the end of text games, because, you know, a lot of those people like Espen Arset and, uh, um, you know, Janet Murray, early game scholars, the, the games they're familiar with, uh, right, that were popular at the time were the kind of uh, late stage of the text adventures, and then the kind of graphical adventures that were still kind of carrying along a lot of those same design traditions. So it's really interesting to me going back to that game study stuff from the 90s, how much of it is kind of taking as a given the notion that, well, a computer game is fundamentally something like an adventure game, right, where, 10 years later when adventure games that kind of commercially died a bit more that wouldn't have been the case so yeah it's really interesting to me too in the fall of 1990 not only bought my first cell phone but i also became the proud owner of, of modem so i was really <laughs> ready for the 2000s however 90s had not been able to intense me to play on a pc the titles you have chosen for this time period then like screen the fire tower or fall london really are terra nova to me and i find them really fascinating Please take our listeners through this time period. Yeah, so the 2000s kind of saw um, the, the late 90s, I would say, and, and early 2000s. The, one of the really interesting things that happened was this kind of dawn of an amateur um, text games movement. So in the mid 90s, a bunch of fans had kind of reverse engineered the story formats of Infocom and a few other companies and come up with new tools and languages to make games that ran in those engines. But kind of unconstrained by, you know, commercial, you know, notions like, you know, this game needs to be profitable, reach this kind of audience. People were just kind of free to explore what that technology could do 
you know, to make art, right? So um, you saw all kinds of fascinating experiments with everything from narrative point of view to um, things like unreliable narrators, um, kind of, you know, any, you know, kind of literary experiment you can imagine, somebody tried to do it in the form of interactive text. And you saw this really burgeoning community of people exploring and kind of pushing the boundaries of this as a new medium of expression. And um, you saw the rise of kind of a bunch of people who would kind of go on to become pretty well known in the narrative game space. Uh, people like Emily Short and Andrew Plotkin, um, who were kind of coming out of this movement um, and really experimenting with what text games could do. So the games you see in this period um, are often very um, personal. You know, they're made by one person with with a particular vision. Um, they're they're again still kind of experimental, but kind of in a, a little bit more of a formal way now, right? Kind of being part of a big community of practitioners and making games kind of as deliberate movements to say, well, you know, can you have a game without any movement? Could you have a game without any, you know, um, any puzzles, right? Like all of these things that have been foundational to the genre before that, people are kind of deliberately poking at, you know, what, what happens if you take these pillars away? What all other kinds of things can you do? Um, so yeah, a, a really fascinating um, kind of thriving indie scene emerged. Um, and a lot of those games are still, you know, kind of became canonical and you, you see them pop up in, in you know, uh, um, interactive narrative courses and other contexts like that today because they influenced a lot of people and, and what people thought about what games could be. Yeah. Now, talking about indies, when I first opened your book and saw the table of contents, I had suspected that interest from the 2010s onward in text games had been back in full fashion. But that now seems to me to be at least a somewhat naive view. What do you think? Have I fallen into a hipster cliche? Did the indie vibe embrace me and lull me to sleep? Where are we in the 2010s? No, I think you're kind of right. There's there's a really, um, you know, there, there is sort of this perception of text games as being a dead genre, but it's really not true. So there's there's a chapter in the book where I cover Lifeline, which for a couple of weeks in 2015 was the number one game on Apple's App Store. And it is a text-only game. Uh, uh, many people listening might remember playing it where you're texting a astronaut who's asking you for help uh, and kind of the conversation unfolds in real time. But as I was researching the book, I noticed a year earlier in 2014, the top selling game on the App Store was also a text-only game, which was a game called A Dark Room, which was um, kind of in the, the kind of idle game genre where you're building up resources and stuff. But the screenshot for that game is this, you know, <laughs> like, but ugly just image of like text that's too small to read, white text against a black background. Like you can't even tell what the text says in the screenshot. And that was the best-selling game on the App Store for, again, a couple of weeks in that year. So these games are still around and they are occasionally, you know, massive successes. Another 2010s game, um, Universal Paperclips by Frank Lance was uh, um, also hugely popular for a while. So they kind of keep coming back in, in one form or another. And I think part of that is because um, in the 2010s, you kind of had a, a nexus of both um, the means to distribute games easily. So, you know, in the 2000s, you started to see the rise of platforms like Steam and uh, um, other things like that that kind of provided an outlet for distribution to indies who weren't, you know, part of big commercial game companies. Um, uh, combined with a rise of kind of new kinds of platforms for playing these games. So things like, um, you know, touchscreen mobile phones and tablets and e-readers are all kind of like new platforms for e e uh, reading text in a 
you know, more comfortable environment than sitting at your desk in front of your, your desktop computer, right? Um, so so you, you kind of had both the means to distribute and a more comfortable means to read long bits of text in, you know, on a device that could handle interactivity. Um, and so I think that, that and, you know, a couple other factors kind of contributed to um, kind of a roadmap to, to making a text game hit the top of the charts again, you know, which hadn't happened again since, you know, the 80s with things like Zork. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Fall of London earlier. There's, there's a lot of browser games like that that are very text-based and super popular. Um, there have been, uh, you know, there's a huge genre of uh, mobile romance games that often outsell, you know, uh, big first-person shooters like Call of Duty um, that don't get talked about very much, but they, those games, um, you know, have millions of players, um, and are often very largely driven by text. So yeah, it's, um, it's kind of surprisingly thriving in all of these different forms. And that was definitely a big part of the book project was thinking about all these different kinds of text games together, kind of as part of the same project under the same umbrella and, you know, um, you know, talking about what is, what is, how do Zork and Choices, what, what do they have in common? You know, how does, Fall in London and a BBS game from the 90s, uh, how are they drawing on similar design lineages? And so that was really fun for me personally, <laughs> and I, I hope for readers of the book too. Yeah. Now, I always like to ask my guests for a little meta-reflection. What aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book that did not make the cut? And secondly, and I'm really excited to ask that every time, where do you see game studies or game research as a, as a field in general? at the moment mm. yeah um you know well so much stuff to your first question right like you you could have i could have written <laughs> many more books on this topic um i think some of the things i was saddest not to include is just purely you know for space reasons uh, and and also just because of my background i decided to mostly focus on games in english so there's two chapters about non-english games but they're obviously huge worlds of text games and languages other than English uh, that, again, could fill many books. Um, uh, you know, I would have loved to dive more. You know, there's there's so many chapters that are sort of the, the one representative of a whole genre, right? So I have, I have one BBS game. I have one game in the genre of play-by-mail, which was another thing the internet kind of killed, which was, you know, a whole thing where you would play this very complicated multiplayer digital game on pen and paper by getting turn reports and penciling in your orders and sending them back to the, the person who fed them into the computer to get the next turn. Um, so yeah, so many of these interesting little genres that we just kind of touch on in the journey the book takes that, um, that each, you know, have their own whole history behind them. Um, yeah. And then as far as where game studies is now, I was just thinking the other day, you know, when I first kind of back in that time when I was applying to grad school and first starting to get into this, you know, I, I think I owned most of the books that had been published about games, right, as far as, you know, scholarly looks, because there were so few at the time. Um, and, and I could kind of keep up with them and, and collect them all. And obviously, that isn't possible now, right? There have been hundreds of books um, out on specific games on different, you know, aspects of game studies, um, from, you know, both academic perspectives and pop culture perspectives, and a lot of stuff in between. Um, so yeah, it's really cool to me that it is, it is no longer, you know, really a thing that one person can keep tabs on certain well, uh, you know, super well, it's, it's expanded and there, there are all these different flavors of game studies, different kinds of perspectives and, and, uh, and, you know, just so many people thinking and writing about games. And that's been really cool to see that explosion happen over the last 15 or 20 years. Yeah. 
Well, Aaron, we have taken up a lot of your time. Please, um, one more secret. <laughs> what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next? Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm hopefully working on a good long nap. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've been, uh, so part of the, the backstory for this book was that um, I decided to uh, self-publish it because of a, a confluence of factors um, and some bad experiences with my last academic book. Um, I did a Kickstarter for it. It ended up being kind of surprisingly hugely successful. I think at the time it was the second highest uh, funded nonfiction book project in Kickstarter history. Um, so suddenly I had 6,000 pre-orders for this book that I had to, you know, <laughs> figure out how to uh, make happen. So, um, so it's been a whole journey through layout and through printing and through shipping and uh, dealing with the last kind of the logistics for that now. Um, it's been pretty exhausting. So I, I think I'm definitely going to take a little downtime. Um, but I think the thing I'm really excited to get back into is I've been in this kind of nonfiction, you know, analytical game studies mode for a couple of years now. And I'm really excited to get back and actually make a new game, which is something I haven't done as much in the last few years. So I'm um, starting to kind of have some ideas percolate in the back of my head. But yeah, I think probably giving myself a little space to breathe <laughs> before diving into the other big project. Uh, now that sounds like really an exciting project, but unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. Maybe uh, if it turns out to be uh, some sort of hybrid or written document as well, maybe we can talk about it again in a few uh, months or years or whenever the time is ready. Yeah, years probably. Let's say years. That's that sounds yeah. better. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you. I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. So um, take care and goodbye. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. So, dear listeners, I hope you like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolfindust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. And again, please share this episode where you see fit and see you in a bit.